Righteous art thou, Lord, when we plead with you, and let us talk with you of your judgments. Thou art righteous, O Lord, who are, who was, who shall be, because you have judged thus. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I am he before me, there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Our Father, once again, we are reminded of who you are, and we ask that your Spirit, the same Spirit that created the universe instantly, is the Spirit that regenerates and illuminates hearts. And we ask that you would give him the authority tonight to illuminate the truth of the Word of God to our hearts, that we may, as Christians, live in the full light of that Word in our time, in our moment of history. In Christ's name, amen. Since we are moving now tonight to a, to a new event, again, we can't review too much, so let's, at the fear of repetition, let's go back to getting the big picture of where we're going. Um, we're looking, going through the Bible, working through the Bible, event by event. So we're really looking at major episodes in Scripture. And you remember when we started this series, we said that it was a little different in that we would want to cover the text of the Scriptures, but at the same time that we're going through the text of Scripture, we're also engaging deliberately and antithetically the thought of the world around us. And we said that the world around us, the Scripture characterizes as of the flesh, and another term that we have used again and again is the word pagan. That is a provocative term. People don't like that term, but historically it is a valid term because the word pagan simply defined is it refers to anyone who does not worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, a non-monotheist. Theoretically, for example, uh, a Muslim cannot be accused of being a pagan because at least giving lip service as he does to the God of the Bible, he's uh, sort of a, an aberration from the scriptural position. But basically, I use the word pagan as a comprehensive title to expose the agenda. That's why I use that provocative term. It exposes the agenda of the culture around us, making it non-neutral. It can't sit there and hide and pretend it's religiously neutral when it isn't religiously neutral. It has a built-in presupposition antithetical to Scripture. And we said that, as we've covered this, the first event, the creation, has powerful implications for our view of God, our view of man, and our view of nature. And we've said that those implications are critical, and again, we, we review them because they're basic to all else, that there's basically only two worldviews in the human race today or ever has been. One is the biblical position that there's the creator-creature distinction and the obvious antithetical to that is there isn't a creator-creature distinction, namely the continuity of being, that gods, men, angels, animals, rocks, molecules are just sort of in a spectrum of being, but there's no absolute difference. God is not distinguished over and against his creation. He's part of the great mystery. So those are the two positions. And what, that, what turns out is that the biblical position 
The Bible is the one that gives us an infinite personal creator. And it's critical that we remember infinite personal creator. There's a person behind the universe, not a gas cloud. Whereas in the pagan side of the house, when you go out, ultimately, you go out into the impersonal background. The Greeks knew this and they called it fate. And the ancients knew this and they called it the dark chaos. The modern people refer to it as the grand mystery. But whatever the vocabulary term, it's always the same thing. That ultimately, furthest back, is the impersonal. Is the just, it's not anything personal, there's no meaning therefore, and all kinds of things follow. Now, we've been trying to be very careful in, exp in exposing for you some of the implications for man and for God. We've said also, as a result of this, that there's another distinction, and we said the distinction is between man and nature. We have drawn again and again the conclusion that God's attributes, the, uh, the characteristics that he has, the scripture says he has, uh, in some of the verses I used in the opening prayer, refer to these attributes, that those are not qualities existing in and of themselves, they're, they're God's character. And since God's character determines his handiwork, and we are his handiwork, it follows that the universe has character traits that are similar to God's characteristics. So, his attribute of eternality is reflected in, in time. Our concept and our experience of historical time is a finite, limited version of his eternality. And we went on and on through each of the attributes and showed these. Well, tonight, we're going to move in the notes to page 51, where we deal with the fall. Because now, we start a, uh, another... Um, part of the scriptures. If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 3, as all what we've done so far is to draw out implications of the first two chapters. And what we're going to do tonight, we're going to go through some of the New Testament texts that interpret the story of the fall. Uh, and then we're going to look at an ancient text. So, I'm going to repeat what I did back two chapters ago. When we dealt with creation, the event of the creation, what we did, you remember, was we said, let's compare how the Bible treats origins with how the world of the time in which the Bible was written treats origins. Remember, we went through Enuma Elish. Why did I pick Enuma Elish? Because Enuma Elish is the most famous ancient Near Eastern text of, of the cosmological literature. Why do we want to do that? Because we want to go back at the same time and place in history that the Bible was. We want to go back to Moses' day, when Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, edited and composed the Pentateuch in its final form. Drawing, of course, upon source materials uh, for his genesis, probably from Noah, Adam. When, when, Noah did, when Moses did that, at that point in history, we claim as Christians God inspired him to write an inerrant text. 
And we flippantly talk all the time in our Christian circles about God inspired the scriptures and so on. What I've tried to do for you is to take a non-inspired text dating from the same general era and put it side by side with the biblical text so you can see what inspiration does. So that's why we said, on one hand, we had a Numa Elish text. On the other hand, we had Moses text. And if you put them side by side, you see tremendous differences. And what those tremendous observable, measurable differences are is the difference between the Holy Spirit overcoming man's propensity to sin and Enuma Elish, where the Holy Spirit was unrestrained and the authors had free reign to generate out of the power of their own carnal imaginations their ideas of origins. That's what we did. So if you take the difference between the pagan literature and the Bible, it's a study in human depth psychology. It's a study of what the Spirit of God does to restrain sin and versus what the carnal mind would come up with. Well, tonight we're going to do the same experiment. We're going to take Genesis 3. You know the story. Presumably you've read it. If you've gone through the notes, we ask you to read these texts before we comment on them. You've read Genesis 3. You know the story of the fall. And what we want to do now is work our way through a contemporary piece of literature to see what the pagans do with the fall. If you learn to think this way, people, it'll protect you. This is like taking a vaccine because the world around us is toxic. It's full of toxic spirituality. And the way you immunize yourself against it is to look at that toxic spirituality under controlled conditions where you can keep it bracketed and controlled by the Word of God. And then you begin to build up an immunity to these ideas. But Christians who don't do this are often suckers for all kinds of stuff. They absorb just unconsciously. Somebody in the classroom said, somebody on TV said, somebody in Time magazine said, somebody in the textbook said, a college professor told me, I read this somewhere. And these ideas get inside, unevaluated, and they're toxic. They're like taking chemicals into your body and finally you begin to have unbelief. You have a difficult time in, in believing and trusting the Lord in various areas. wonder why. Because deep in your soul you have this garbage that's come in from the pagan outside environment. So that's why we're trying to approach it from this point of view. Now in Genesis 3, um, there's several key texts. One of them that we are going to ask you in the exercise that we didn't have time, we didn't have the space in the pages, the handout, but it's on the handout given out tonight, is to look at three sets of verses. One, back in Genesis chapter 2, and verses 16 and 17. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, those are the original commands of God. And to do this little exercise, this little challenging thing, we, we won't carry it out tonight, but I'm encouraging you to look at the exercise because it's in the first part of the handout tonight. If you will write out by hand on a piece of paper, is the best way to do this, so that it's double-spaced. In other words, allow write, write across the page the text as you see it in your Bible, and then leave about three lines and write the text again, continuing the text. Leave three lines and write it. So you've spread out the Genesis 
chapter 2, verses, uh, what we're looking at, verses uh, 16 and 17 on, on a text of paper. And the next trick is either in another color pencil or in a pen if you've written the first one in pencil, but just, just so your eyeball sees the difference. Then what you want to do is you want to uh, take Satan's words found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and the, what he says in verse 4, verse 5, uh, and, I, and write in between the word of God that you got from chapter 2. So you write that out, maybe in a different color pen. Then the third exercise is to go back through it and take chapter 3, verse 2, what the woman said was going on. Verse 2 and verse 3 and write that parallel. So now you have on your paper, you have the text, line 1, line 4, and then line 2 and line 5, you have what Satan said, and line 3 and line 5, you have what the woman said. And just write it all out on a piece of paper and observe. Observe the sequence of words in particular, here's a, here's a point to, in this exercise, circle adverbs. Surely. Now, in the Hebrew, you don't have a lot of those adverbs, but they're the translator's device to, to, make, to try to tra bring it over into English what the Hebrew emphasis is, because the Hebrew verbs have moods to them, imperative mood. They have infinitive absolutes. They have all these kind of forms, and the way you bring it over into our languages, you have to use syntax from the English. But in these words, you will notice, if you check the adverbs and the negatives, watch what the knots are attached to, and watch what the adverb pattern looks like. And if you look, work your way through, uh, word by word, you'll begin to notice something. And the first observation you're going to see is that neither Satan nor the woman are talking about what God said. It sounds superficially like what he said. But there's a massive distortion going on in the way they say it. And you pick up these nuances. So, do that. Just try to work that through and ask the Holy Spirit to kind of give you illumination as you do that. It's a little exercise in observing the text. And that will be good because for the next uh, three or four weeks we're going to be drawing the implications out of, of this section of Scripture. Um, the other thing to notice in this chapter 3 is the sequence of the interrogation. After the fruit is eaten, in verse 9, if you'll skip down now to chapter 3, verse 9, what you have here is the first counseling session. This is, this, uh, you want a theory of counseling. Here's, here's what it looks like. Isn't this interesting? You don't have to go to Sigmund Freud for this. Watch how God deals with a problem. Because if, we, if God doesn't change, and we basically haven't changed, and sin is still sin, then what you have here is an archetypical counseling encounter of how God deals with us. And in particular, it's a pattern of how the Holy Spirit still today deals with us. So that's why this is kind of important. In... in uh, Verse 9, do you notice something immediately about God's first question? 
Do you notice that God in, in, he doesn't say, Adam, you sinned, you screwed up. He, God knows he screwed up. God knows he sinned. But you might ask yourself, why does he use that particular approach in verse 9? Put yourself in Adam's position. Why do you think that's more effective in how God starts the interrogation? So that's a question you can have fun with in verse 9. Now, watch the dialogue. Notice in verse 9, God speaks. In verse 10, Adam responds. Adam responds in verse 12 passing it to the woman. Then in verse 13, God now moves over to the woman. And the end of verse 13, the woman passes it on to Satan. Then the Lord says to Satan, watch the sequence of who's talking to who. Watch the buck being passed. So he goes from Adam to the woman to the serpent. Now the grand curse in verse 14 and 15 is directed to Satan. So the conversation starts, Adam, woman, Satan. God now reverses it. First he, taught, he, he, he condemns Satan in verses 14 and 15. Now verse 16, he comes back to the woman. And then in verse 17 and 18 and 19, he comes back to man. So there's like a chiasm or like a little valley. You have the man, the woman, the serpent, the serpent, the woman, the man. Watch the sequence. The other thing that you want to notice, the irony of all this, there's an irony to, to the design of the text. Because if you look in verse, in verse 14 and 15, it's the curse that's put on the serpent. Compare the content of the curse with what you saw in chapter 3, verse 1. He's saying something to the serpent. He characterizes the serpent's future life and compare that future characterization post-cursing to the characterization of the serpent in verse 1 of chapter 3. And ask yourself, what elements do you observe in verse 1 that are repeated in contrast form in verses 14 and 15? Do you see irony in that sequence? Now, in verse 16, when God turns to the woman, he... Uh, uses some verbs there. Watch the verbs. For example, in the line, in pain you will bring forth children. Compare that with chapter 1 in what he told man to do. You shall be fruitful and you shall multiply. What's different? What's the same? What's different? The last two clauses to the woman your desire shall be for your husband, he shall rule over you. Compare that with chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Also, for the proper interpretation of that ruling in verse 16, if you'll go over to chapter 4, verse 7, you'll see the analog in the original languages. Chapter 4, verse 7 uses exactly the same Hebrew construction as that last part of verse 16. And if you observe that, it'll help you interpret now, going down further in the text, verse 17, 18, and 19, observe the elements in that text. And by the way, here's a good, good way of doing this, now that we live in the era of copy machines. Copy this text out in the copy machine, so you won't be 
uh, and make two or three copies. So you can use colored pencils and mark it up all the way you want to. But it's marking this thing and figuring out relationships in the text that where the Holy Spirit blesses you and teaches you that you've got to get into the text by way of a direct observation. That means writing yourself little notes, diagramming sentences, figuring out where's the subject, where's the verb, why is this structure this way, why is an adverb there? Those are the questions you want to ask the text. And you, it's thrilling to get into the text. Once you do this and develop, an, so I don't want to say totally independent, but you develop your powers of observation. So you're tuned to, to read this. Notice in verse 17, 18, and 19, what elements in those three verses would you compare with what you saw back in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16? In chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, as well as chapter 1, 26 through 30, Adam was told certain things. Now, in chapter 3, verse 17, 18, and 19, he's told certain things. Another question to ask yourself is why, in verses 16, when he's talking to the woman, does he talk about a different subject than he does to the man in verses 17, 18, and 19. Why is there a gender difference in this? Is that meaningful? Does this say something about where Satan loves to attack, where the greatest trials in life are going to be for each gender? So, those are things, those are patterns you want to watch. And then, of course, in verse 15, that verse is called the Proto-Evangelium, meaning that is the first place of Scripture that the Gospel is present. It's the first Gospel announcement. And you want to think about this business of bruising on the head, a mortal wound, versus you will bruise him on the heel, a, a non-mortal wound. What's that all about? For those of you who have read in mytho mythological literature in school or on your own as a hobby, I think if you look at verse 15 and read that curse on the serpent, it ought to remind you of a famous Greek myth. Anybody remember that? The story of the Greek son who was held by his what? We are named, a part of our anatomy is named for it. The Achilles heel. You'll see these themes of Scripture reappear in the myths of the world. And all the while, the skeptics are saying, oh, what the Bible is is just a compilation of myth. No, no, it's exactly reverse. Myth is a compilation of distorted biblical truths. Okay, so we've looked at the, at the text briefly tonight to just look at the, at, at the, um, at the interactions. You'll want to also notice verse 20. Why is the woman not called Eve until this, per until this point is reached? And why is it after verse 20 that you have the first death recorded in Scripture? Much to the chagrin of the animal rights movement, the first animal that was killed in history was killed by its creator. God killed the first animal. Why did he do so? And what was the cause of death of the first animal? Little gives you another little insight about creatures. Now, verses 22, 23, and 24 also are important because of the implications. We said last week that sentence in verse 22 is one of the rare sentences in Scripture that's never finished. 
Uh, some of your translations have a little line at the end of that quote trying to show you that in the Hebrew the grammar is incomplete. What God is saying is, Behold, a man is like one of us. Now, uh, let's do this, all-knowing good is, lest he stretch out his hand and take from the evil and leap forever. There's a series of consequences that are never finished. And that, isn't, that means if when you stop a sentence, either you've been distracted or the content of what you've started to say, you don't want to finish. And that's the implication here, that God has begun to lay out certain consequences and they are so horrible that he does not want to even mention them. Thus, that sentence is unfinished. And in verse 24, you'll notice that man from that point, apparently until the flood, was kept by angelic beings. And the implication, by the way, in verse 24 is that angels and men knew one another physically at that point in history. It says, cherubs, guard the way. Adam, his sons, and his sons' sons might go up to that garden, go back to where they had been created. And every time they go back, they would face these armed angels that would prevent them. This is the world's first military and police force that's brought in. And the power of civil sword, by the way, notice the flaming sword in verse 24. You'll hear the word sword again in Scripture. The next time you see it, it will be the sword of the civil state. But prior to the institution of the sword of the civil state in Genesis 8 and 9, or Genesis 9 and 10 actually, here you have the first sword, the first capital punishment, the first sign of judicial power and authority of in the creature is vested not in men, it is vested in angelic beings who had some sort of communication with men in this era of time. All right, we've looked at that, and one other thing we want to remind you as we go into this section of the text is in page 51 down the bottom, where I say comparing the biblical fall with pagan myths, I ask you to please read those New Testament texts. We won't go through them all tonight because you should have gone through those on your own. Uh, but I do want to take you over to uh, Revelation 22, last passage of Scripture. We take it, I mentioned those, those New Testament references because they give you insight into how the Bible is to be interpreted. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. There's a lot of nonsense written about the Bible. And it's written by people who really don't know it well. And one way to guard yourself against nonsense is to allow other portions of Scripture to interpret it. Now, in Revelation 22, the very last book of the Bible, in verse 3, it says of the new heavens and the new earth, it goes on to describe it. And by the way, in verse, well, let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 22 of Revelation. He showed me a river of water, and you will notice in the book of Genesis 3, in Genesis 2, what flows in the Garden of Eden? A river of water. I will come not back to comment on that later. But there's a river of water here in the new universe. And where is it coming from? It's coming from the throne of God. And in the middle of its street and so forth. And then, bearing the twelve kinds of fruit, the trees, yielding its fruit every month, the leaves of the healing of the nations. And then it says in verse 3, there shall be no longer any curse. Short verse, short sentence, there will be no more curse. 
Now, the fact that that curse is mentioned in the last chapter of the Bible tells you that that curse that's imposed in Genesis is powerful, enveloping, and universal. Never to be taken away until the new heavens and the new earth are here. It tells you then that when you read Genesis and you read things like God cursed the serpent, people say, ah, oh, isn't that a cute little animal story? It's more than that. The fact is that those features that look trivial in the Genesis narratives are meant to be taken extremely seriously as universals that control all the structure of human history. So you can't overemphasize the importance of these little points in the text. All right, now, if you'll follow in the notes, I want to take you to the pagan text. If, on page 52. This is Enuma Elish again, the same one that we did back when we were comparing uh, Genesis and, um, um, and creation, the creation story. Let's see if I still have that overhead. You remember, we went through this kind of line by line. Um, there's a section in that text right there. Let's see, get my pen in the right place. There. That has a faint parallel to the origin of sin in discord. You'll see in the notes, <coughs> the divine brothers... <coughs> Gathered together, they disturbed Tiamat and assaulted their keeper. They disturbed the inner parts of Tiamat. And that, by the way, the inner parts of Tiamat, shows you that the god and gods in these texts were not thought of as ghosts. They were thought of as material entities. In some strange way, they were both gods and goddesses, but also the earth, the water, and the fire. Moving and running about in the divine abode. Apsu could not diminish their clamor, and Tiamat was silent in regard to their behavior. Yet their doing was painful to them, their way was not good. Not good. So here you have a certain chaos within the gods in the ancient past. Note the story. Apsu calls his help Mumu to help him persuade Tiamat all three of them should destroy the noisy progeny. And here's their argument. This is a husband and wife argument that's going on here. Their way has become painful to me. By day I can't rest. By night I can't sleep. I will destroy them and put an end to their way. Tiamat protests. Why should we destroy that which we ourselves have brought forth? Their way is indeed very painful, but let's take it good-naturedly. And so it goes on. They, Apsu tries to do that. He gets in the war of the gods. He is crushed. And so you have this constant chaos and struggle and fighting. Okay? That's the pagan mind at work. Now here's a question. I want to write it in the margin of your notes because this is the kind of thing that you want to say, look, I am reading as a Christian the Genesis narrative. The Genesis narrative tells me very clearly that when the universe left God's fingertips, he said it was very good. There was no discord. There was no disharmony going on. And then there was at a certain point in time. But if you look at this, it was, it's kind of a mushy blend and you'll also notice here, man isn't involved. But the gods and goddesses themselves are involved in the process of evil. We'll come back to the uh, implications of that. Now, if you look at the notes further, 
Watch the next paragraph where I make the remark, keep this narrative in mind as you consider the modern pagan story of evolution. According to the modern story, evil always exists in some form. You might want to note that. That's an important sentence. Evil always exists in some form. Indeed, natural evil in the form of death is the means of natural selection, so essential in the alleged evolution of man. I wrote creation, I should have said evolution. The story of evolution is blessed are the fittest, for they shall survive. Now, you see, morally and ethically, modern evolution, with regard to the problem of death and suffering and evil, is no different than the pagan stories of the ancient world. There is no structural difference between Darwin and Numa Elish. It's amazing. So obvious. Evil is always there. Now here's an interesting observation. It is only in the Bible and certain biblically connected cultures where evil starts at a point in time. All other stories don't really give you an origin of evil. So we're going to look now, as we did before, page 52 and page 53 of the notes, we're going to deal first with the similarities of these stories with Genesis. Then we're going to deal with the differences. And keep in, why, we, why are we doing this tonight? Because we're trying to show what the human mind would normally gravitate to in its carnality by way of explanations and theories and hypotheses versus what the human mind does when the Holy Spirit comes, controls that mind, and produces a godly thought, a true thought. So, we'll look now at the similarities with Genesis. I, I quote there the Babylonian Adapa legend. A half God, half man, because Adapa is called to heaven to answer for something he did on earth. While he is there, he's offered food of life, the water of life. If he partakes it, it will convey to him immortality. He refuses. He's sent back to earth to die. And he, as the representative of man, is the explanation in that myth for why we die. Man had the opportunity one time for immortality. Now, that's somewhat similar, isn't it? What was in the tree, what was in the, in the garden besides the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It was the tree of life. And that's remembered in mythologies. And here's an example. The Adapa legend of the Greeks remembers that tree of life. And there are many other legends. And I give you another one, the one that we mentioned earlier from Southeast Asia, the Karen people, which is now in the country called uh, Burma, Siam, or whatever it's called today. Yua formed the world originally. Look at this text. It's a remarkable story that recapitulates Genesis 3. He appointed food and drink. He gave them the fruit of trial. He gave detailed orders. Mulali deceived two persons. He caused them to eat the fruit of the tree of trial. They obeyed not. They believed not. When they ate of the tree of trial, they became subject to sickness, aging, and death. Now, if that isn't a copy of Genesis 3, I don't know what is. But here's the mystery. That story dates before the missionaries reached those people. So the question is, how was that truth preserved all the way from Noah down to 1850, uh, close to 1900, when a researcher found this in that tribe? The only explanation we have for this kind of thing is that the Holy Spirit, among many, many peoples on this planet, preserved something of the truth of Noah to those people. So when you hear all this story about, oh, they never had, 
Oh, yes, they did here. Where these people get this stuff from? And make it up. They had plenty of truth and light. So those are the similarities, and we can see similarities in the explanations found in Isaiah 40:21, when Isaiah says, "This has been known from the beginning." In other words, Isaiah, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, says that mankind has been exposed to truth from the days of creation. So you can argue all the sociology you want to, but embedded in these primitive cultures are elements of the truth in every race, in every language, in every continent. You know why it's there? Because that's the only way people can be held accountable. Now we come to the contrast with Genesis. We've looked at some of the similarities. Yes, there are some similarities, usually buried deeply in all the other garbage that goes along. But we want to now look at the contrast because these contrasts show us things that we have to be careful about in our own lives. These contrasts show what our natural mind wants to do to suppress the truth. So what traits do we observe in these stories? Well, first let's remember, what were the traits that we observed in the creation event? Remember we said there was the creation event and it became distorted through time. Here's Noah and Noah's day. And as the different races and tribes expanded across the face of the earth, carrying the Noahic traditions with them, those Noahic traditions gradually were were polluted, contaminated, and so forth, mutilated. So, some tribes had a lot of truth, some tribes had little, some had none, some had a lot. And then there was one that God preserved, which we call Israel and the sons of Abraham. And God infused additional knowledge to save the corpus of truth for the human race. But these different tribes had pieces of the truth. But though they had pieces of the truth, in each case, there was a massive distortion so that percent-wise, maybe one tribe had 30% truth and 70% error. Another tribe had 5% truth and 95% error, and so on. There were these proportions of error that crept in. And so as we look at these stories, we ask ourselves, what what does the error look like? And we said, back when we dealt with the creation thing, that one of the errors was that the creator-creature distinction was lost. Not that they didn't talk about God. Not that they didn't use the word creator. They used the word creator. It was just that they were using it out of context, so there wasn't this absolute distinction between them. And we said the second thing that was true of all this mythology is that there was a loss of a sense of a personal sovereign God. Remember we said all the fighting going on, there were a multiplicity of gods, they were arguing with one another. It was a committee without a chairman, we said. There was no one infinite personal authority. That was what was gone. All right, now look at this. Element number one and element number two. What we're saying is that our sin nature, the carnal mind, likes to do that to the truth. And we can find it on our own hearts. When we're wandering around spiritually, what do we do to God? We always diminish Him. We diminish His glory. We don't believe His attributes. We insist that He answer to us. And all those things that we observe are just simply doing what the pagans have done for centuries. We just trying to cut God down to our size. And the other thing that we love to do is pretend that he isn't in authority, that it's all sort of chancy. I mean, after all, why do I dare to sin? 
because I think I get away with it. Would I th really think that I dare to get away with it if I was really convinced that God was sovereign, powerful, personal? No. So I, I bought into it when I do that. Well, that's what we did with creation. Now what we want to do is we want to say, what if we do the same analysis, this time not looking at creation, but we look at the event of the fall, let's look from Noah out to all these tribes, we, we sample their literature, and we say again, what do they do with the Noahic truth passed to them originally of Genesis 3? What does Genesis 3 look like after it gets through being mutilated by the carnal mind? All right, the first thing we say, notice right under on page 53, we say earlier we learned there were two major areas of contrast. There was a contrast between the created creature two-level view and the pagan view of one-level view. We just covered that. And then the, the, the personal sovereign God was replaced by impersonal chance or fate. God's there, maybe, but he's really not totally in control. There's a little chunk of zone, a neutrality zone where I can flee. Well, now, what we do looking at the fall literature, the first amazing thing we have is, number one on page 53, bounded evil versus eternal evil. Now, let me show you what we're talking about here. All kinds of paganism. Note the bottom line, the bottom diagram here. In the bottom diagram, good and evil always were there, and more importantly, always will be there. Note that. When you feel like you as a Christian have to apologize for your faith, think of that one. Would you like to believe that? That good and evil will always be here? Excuse me, I don't think I got the problem. I think you got the problem, we ought to be saying. That is unbounded evil. That is evil that is part and parcel of existence like oxygen is. I couldn't conceive of a universe without evil ever, ever, ever again. It never was without evil and never shall be without evil. Evil is a corollary to existence. Suffering, death, and misery are a corollary to existence. There is no existence from a suffering existence, a dying existence. A horrible existence. That's paganism. It has always had that answer, people, and it will always have that answer. Always has, always will. It can't get out of it. It's trapped. Evil is unbounded in pagan, every pagan view. You don't believe me? Think about this for a minute. In the Orient, as I mentioned here in the text, if you, in fact, go down to... Um, the bottom of page 53. It will always be part of existence. From Enuma Elish to Socrates to Darwin, evil is an inescapable component of existence. Now, watch the next sentence. Critical. To escape the horror of an eternal existence with evil, some forms of oriental religion devise the only conceivable escape going into a state of non-existence. Nirvana. You ask why New Age and Hinduism have these strengths. Drugs. 
We're talking about the drug culture here, allied with the New Age culture, allied with Oriental religions. Why do they always do this? It's sort of a suicide of existence. The, 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 the Hindus, I believe, were the ones that said this. My life is like a drop of water. It has form, it is limited, and it ends by dropping into the ocean. Now, what happens when a drop drops into the ocean? What happens to its identity? It's gone. So, very cleverly, it's, it's a cute solution to this problem. The only solution you have if you believe this, if you in your heart really buy into this, the only solution you have is to destroy yourself. And that's exactly what the drug culture does. That is exactly what the New Age movement does. That is exactly what Hinduism and Buddhism have done over the centuries. It's the same answer. Oh, it comes out in a different vocabulary. Somebody writes a new book. But it's always the same thing. Learn to recognize that for what it is. And rejoice that as a Christian, you've been rescued from that. That is the only answer. The only answer outside of the Bible. So we don't have to apologize for the Scriptures. It's like Patton said in, the, in his film. We don't, and then George C. Scott, you always think of him as Patton like you always think of Charlton Heston as Moses. Meet the real one someday, we'd be surprised. And he, he said, don't, uh, he says, don't worry about them. He said, you shoot them in the belly. Not worried about them shooting us. We shoot them. And that's where the non-Christian is weak. He yak-yaks endlessly about a problem of evil in Christianity. Hey, buddy, you got a bigger one than I've got. All right, so now let's go further back up. And I want you to see Heidel's quote because something else is also true here. In that quote on page 53 by Dr. Heidel from the University of Chicago, he points out that of the Babylonians it can be said what Cicero said with reference to the poets of Greece and Rome. The poets have represented the gods as inflamed by anger, maddened by lust. They've displayed to our gaze their wars and battles, their fights and wounds, their hatreds, their enmities and their quarrels. Since all the gods were evil by nature, and since man was formed with their blood, man, of course, inherited their evil nature. Man, consequently, was created evil and was evil from his very beginning. How then could he fall? The idea that men fell from a state of moral perfection does not fit into the system or systems of Babylonian speculation. Now that's coming from a man who is a reputed world authority in ancient literature. Dr. Heidel was senior professor at the University of Chicago's ancient oriental school for many years. And this is not just a flippant, off-the-cuff remark that he's making. So I just give you to that encouragement that the issue that we see between the Bible and outside in the world is the Bible has a bounded story. Look at this story up here. Here we find creation originally good at a point in time evil originates and then there's a point in which evil and good are separated forever and ever and in the good, which is the new heavens and the new earth, that is never to be contaminated again, ever again. There will be no more curse. Revelation 22, verse 3. So it's bracketed at the front end. It's bracketed at the back end. Evil is contained in the Scripture. That gives us hope. You see, paganism ultimately is hopeless. 
It is a hopeless mess in the true sense of the word. Only in the scriptures do we have evil originate. People laugh at Genesis 3 and say, oh, the story of man falling. Thankfully, it's there. Because if the story, if the evil never did start in the garden, then it always was with us. All right, the second thing on page 54. Again, quoting Heidel. The problem of the origin of sin does not even enter into consideration. This is, he's talking about these ancient pagan pieces of literature. Consequently, it is a misnomer to call the Adapa legend, the Babylonian version of the fall of man, the Adapa legend and the biblical story are fundamentally different as far apart as the Antipodes. In Enuma Elish, this is my comment, it was the original divine parents who selfishly abused their children and mankind merely followed in their footsteps. Since evil was a corollary to existence itself, no personal responsibility for evil's origin is given. Mankind is just a passive victim to what is. So we have the second great characteristic now between the pagan and the Bible. These are broad brush approaches, but they work. Look again at the fall. The event of the fall, as distorted by paganism, the fall is replaced by a denial of origins. There is no origin. The origin's been removed. Evil always was there. Just like creation is always removed. The universe just always was there. So, so here. So that means that evil is unbounded versus the truth where evil is bracketed and confined. And suffering is confined. And death is confined. And horror is confined. Now, the second, this is number one, the second great idea that you want to train yourself to observe between the Bible and the world system around us is that the world system, because there is no fall, there is no blame. And so you remove responsibility for evil. And if you subtract responsibility, you are left with a victim. That has always been the case. The Adapa legend, what happened? The guy refused the drink, and so all mankind was the victim. No personal responsibility. Everybody's a victim. Blame it on this. Blame it on something else. To show that this is actually how we think, let's go back to Genesis 3. Remember we said when we first started tonight, what was the dialogue like between God, Adam, and Eve? The, the, the fact that these stories have this in it show their reality. People don't like the Bible because it speaks to our hearts. It's a lamp that shines in a dark place. And we don't like what we see when the light's turned on. That's why we don't like the Scripture. It brings too much of our dark hearts. So we see ourselves for what we are. You look again in Genesis 3... Verse 12, is Adam accepting personal responsibility or is he claiming victimization? Let's go to the woman. In verse 13, is she acknowledging personal responsibility for her choices or is she claiming victimization? All was the victim. Poor me. 
My mother dropped me on my head when I was a baby or something. So this is, this is the story. This always is the story. And it always will be. There is not just, it's not just a funny trait. That's what I'm trying to get at tonight. There's a powerful structure that's operating here. This idea of kissing everything off as victimization is related to the other idea. That evil isn't there because of us. It's there because of something else. It's in the molecules. It's not me. I mean, I didn't have anything to do with this. Even the most rabid environmentalist who will say that we're wrecking the environment would never go so far as to say what Genesis 3 says, would they? Talk about environmentalism. You want an environmental text? Genesis 3 is a good one. Man wrecked the environment of the whole universe. That's what Genesis 3 is saying. And I'll bet you when you push that one onto an environment, oh, whoops, whoops, I don't mean that much responsibility. Oh, oh, okay. So we have ultimate, we bear ultimate responsibility for the state of the universe. Now, why is that? Think about that for a minute. Adam and Eve and ourselves corporately in them. We share the blame for the way the universe is. We share the blame for the death of animals. The animals had, had rights in one sense, but not quite like the animal rights people think. Animals suffer today because of our sin, going all the way back historically to what went on in that garden. The environment today is savaged by forces of the curse upon us. And if we are in this text and we notice why in verse 17, 18, and 19 the environment wreaks destruction, notice that language and the nuance in verse 17 when God curses it. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. What had he said earlier? Now people look at that and say, oh, that means work. That doesn't mean work. Look back in chapter 2, verse 15. What was Adam supposed to do there? He was supposed to work. Work didn't begin with a fall. Work began with creation. God was the first laborer. took him six days to make the universe. And he thought that was pretty slick. Everything he built, he looked at and said, hey, I like that. The first picture you get of God is he's a worker, a laborer, a craftsman, who takes pride in what he constructs. But then, what we find is that in the curse of verse 17, God doesn't say that work begins because the toiling in the garden was in verse 15. Remember when God said that in verse 15 of chapter 2? He took the man, he said, cultivate it and keep it. And he said, of any tree in the garden you may eat freely. Now, this is a little tip. Remember I started the lesson tonight by saying, write out the little text, and I said, watch adverbs? This is what I mean. See that little word, freely, there? Try seeing if you can spot that one in what Satan and the woman say. There's an adverb that gets dropped out of the uh, discussion very quickly. Why is that adverb in there in verse 15? Doesn't it show you something of the overabundance of what God provided? And Satan's trying to make God out to be a big stooge, and so he drops off the adverb. Well, now, if you look here, Look down at verse 17 of chapter 3 and look at the adverbial effect. See, it says, in toil you shall eat of it. You can treat that as kind of an adverb. Toilsomely you will eat of it. Toilsomely you shall work. Why? 
Why is it g the ground doing this? What, had God, what is the hierarchy that you originally see in creation? Let's think about the chain of command here. First you have God, then you have Adam. And what was Adam to do? He was to till the earth, and of the earth he was to bring forth fruit. Now what is the curse? Where does it strike man? I said, watch for the irony in the text. What had Adam done here in this relationship? He reversed it, didn't he? Adam said, I will be as God, knowing both good and evil. I will call the terms. And God says, fine, Adam, you want to be God? Try ruling your domain now. And so what God does, he curses this, so the earth rebels against Adam. See, it's irony. Man rebels against God, so the ground rebels against us. And everywhere we see natural disaster, we're talking natural disaster, not just human disaster. Tornadoes, storms, volcanoes, earthquakes. And people say, oh, look at the innocent kids that are killed in Bangladesh every time there's a hurricane, a typhoon that comes into that part of the Indian Ocean. And they say, oh, this is a horrible, horrible thing. How can God let something like that happen? Wasn't that way originally. Where's the ground curse? Right here. That's where it starts. This is natural evil. Man chose to rebel, so the ground rebels against man. So, we summarize tonight by saying the, the last tail end of this thing in the fall is the pagan denies the origin of evil so that he has an unlimited evil. There's no start and there's no end. The Bible brackets evil because it has a start point and it has a removal point. The second big idea to master from the scriptures is that paganism always denies responsibility. Not flippantly, I mean, we all joke about it, but it has a real agenda to do that. It does so because evil to the pagan mind isn't something originally brought in by us. So why? I'm a victim of it. I didn't cause it. If I didn't cause it, I'm a victim of it. I'm either active or passive. So the Bible says we are the active ones in the process of evil. We brought it in. Pagan says, no, we're not. We're the passive ones. And the result is that the Bible accepts responsibility. And in the counseling session of Genesis 3, all that God does to Adam and all that God does to the woman, he is trying to get them to confess their sin. And the confession of sin is simply acknowledging my responsibility that I did, was not caused to do that. I chose to do that. So you see, it's very simple. The story is so simple. But the ideas are so powerful. They contaminate every area and affect every area of life if you look at it from the pagan point of view. And in the Bible point of view, we struggle as Christians with both of those deals. When we lose our hope, we are basically abandoning it Stepping over here to the pagan idea that, that this evil will just go on and on and on. God doesn't care about me and so on and so forth and blah, 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 blah. And we lose sight of the fact that he has bracketed it. We lose sight of the fact that we are responsible. Not only for our personal sin, but in Adam we are responsible for all of the world's sufferings. It's not God's fault. And that leads, sets us up so that when we worried further, as in the handout tonight, you should have page 55, that section that starts, you'll see for next time, evil under God.
We're going to deal with God, man, and nature all over again. And we're going to deal with the relationships with God, what it does to that relationship, man, what evil does to man, and then what evil does with nature. Father, we thank You for our time tonight. We're so thankful that through the Holy Spirit You have preserved truth mercifully down through history when every intent and every thought of man's heart was to bury it, to hide it, to flee from it. And yet You continued to call to us as You did Father Adam. Where are You? Why are You where You are? And we're so thankful for our Father's voice. And we thank You especially for the work that You did in response to that promise of the seed of the woman who came to be our Savior. Amen. Eve has a choice. Uh, She has a choice of trusting God's word authoritatively and she doesn't elect to do that what she says in effect is I've got Satan telling me I'm not going to die I have God saying I am going to die and what she's really doing instead of doing this by the time she's dialoguing she's already done this and see she's already got God and Satan on the same plane and that's all part of the origination of evil what the Bible presents is that and we'll get into this later in the problem of suffering The Bible never tells us why God set history up to go the way it's going. That question is not answered in the Bible for a reason we'll discuss. But um, the Bible does say that evil originated after the creation. And it was originated by the creature, not by the creator. Either in the, both in the case of Adam and the case of Satan, because if if we take Ezekiel 28 passage about the the king of um, Tyre, as a, as a really, he's talking, the prophet is addressing Satan through that king, like oftentimes in the Old Testament, uh, through David, like in Psalm 110 there, um, David stands up as a messianic figure, and it's, it's obviously greater than David that's being mentioned in the psalm. So you, so you know the kind of the Holy Spirit's really talking about Christ, even though he's talking at David. Well, it's the same thing there. God addresses the king of Tyre, and he says, he says, uh, you, had, you had all these riches and wealth and beauty until the day that evil was found in you. Well, clearly there's a time gap between the time he was created and the time all of a sudden this happens. And the other passage we have in Isaiah 14, when God, which depicts the original sin, when Satan said, I will be like the Most High. And when you look at those passages, that's why those, the story, the origin of evil is very important because the origin of evil is the clearest picture of evil. What we think of evil is we, nine times out of ten, we're thinking of some immoral social thing. And the Bible, interestingly, I mean, Satan didn't rip anybody off. It's not theft. It's not adultery. It's not anger. It's something else. The essence of sin is that I will determine it. Self-centered, I. And so, by showing those little glimpses of the origin of evil, the Holy Spirit's educating us to this toxin, this, this awful thing that we have to face that sent Christ to the cross, ultimately. But evil came out of the creature. 
There's no question in the scriptures, both in the Ezekiel 28 passage, until evil was found in you. And in the garden, it was the man and the woman who turned and God addressed them. He addressed the serpent, who was obviously Satan already fallen by that point. Uh, so you have a blame. So the origin of evil is within the creation. It's not in the creator. And that's the radical difference because in the Adapa legend and in the Enuma Elishland, clearly the gods themselves were evil. Yes, Glenn. Oh, yeah. Now, it, in, the, in the notes to, that I have for next time, we get into the problem of evil a little bit more deeply. And I point out that, that while the Bible doesn't tell us all the complete answer to evil, it really does not have a complete answer to evil. And I'm not saying there isn't a complete answer to evil. I'm just saying we haven't been told the complete answer yet. But in there I point out that... Um, when God comes to Job, and Job's been complaining about his suffering and his sorrow, it's remarkable that when you get right back down to that end chapter, Job is not given the answer. Job would like to have an answer. Why did I lose my sons? Why did I lose my wealth? Why did this happen to me? It's the classic question. Why did this happen to me? And if you watch the text, uh, how God works with Job, it's almost like he, he, he overpowers Job with his presence. Job comes to see God in all of his glory and his presence, and the question falls away. It dissolves. Job never asks the question again. All Job ever says is after he sees God, he sees himself as being terribly foolish for even asking the question. And that's the tantalizing answer the scriptures always... They, the scripture leaves us dangling that way because we have to make a choice that do we trust that there is an answer that God has in his heart that makes perfect sense, but he has not yet chosen to tell us. And he's asking us to trust him and his character. In other words, he, he would say to us, you have got to trust me that I know what I'm doing. And you either trust me or you don't. And if you don't, you're sinning. And I don't owe you an answer. I don't know. <laughs> Ask God. I, I really don't know, Debbie. I, well, the thing that you have to be careful, though, is, is that in the sentence of warning, God said, in the day that you eat, you're going to die. Now, some have pointed out, and there's a, there's a verse in Kings, I checked check, check this all out one time, laboriously going through every occurrence of that expression in the Hebrew. And I found another place in the Bible where that same occurrence occurs, in the day that you, blah, 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 you shall, dot, 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 die. 
And the, the mystery, of course, is why... Well, God, Adam didn't drop dead at that moment. And yet the Bible says, in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. Well, if you look at the analog over in 1 Kings, it's a case where a king sins, I forget his name, but he sins, and God says, the day that you sin, you're, you're, you die. In other words, you begin to die. That at that point, you are a doomed man. And his kingdom begins to fall apart, and he ultimately dies. And the, but the Hebrew emphasis is there that the, the wheels of judgment begin and they will roll and they will not be stopped. That you've doomed yourself is, is the way we would translate it today. So obviously that involves also a spiritual aspect that he died immediately spiritually and not for a while physically. But whatever that was, that's why he didn't seek God in the garden because it's the, it's the part of us that is revolts. That, that's what's so horrifying about sin is that sin's effect on us is it turns us from wanting God. That's the horror of it. It's not all the little things we do. I mean, those are bad enough. But what's horrifying about sin is it's a revulsion. It's an inner revulsion against ever wanting to come face to face with God. And that's what Adam was doing. He fled from his presence. And we do. And this is why, you know, the, the writers, the early writers, three or four hundred years ago, kept referring to the Holy Spirit as the hound of heaven. Well, that's where that expression got started. God sends the hounds out. He was, they were using Old English uh, hunting, hounds going after the foxes. And it was a metaphor of the hunter. So they would flush him out. And so that's how that got into Christian literature, the, the hound of heaven. Because it's the Holy Spirit reaching out, just like God in the garden, God initiated that counseling. And had God, the, the counterpart to your question would be, what would have happened if God had not have started the conversation? Because left to themselves, Adam and Eve would still be there. <laughs> still hiding. But it was God who, who initiated, and there's the picture of grace at work. But he didn't have to do that. Because he told them up front what the story was all about. And, and they chose, hey, sorry, two bad guys. But he went that extra. And then, then lo and behold, he has this neat plan. The best picture to do that, like Glenn was saying, God had this all planned out. The neatest phraseology that I've ever seen for saying this in an in a, a economical way is that neat children's series, the Narnia Chronicles by C.S. Lewis. Because I think it's in... The, first, the, the classic first one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And you'll see there's a, two chapters in there. And you watch the titles that Lewis puts on there. He has one title called Magic from the Dawn of Time. And it's talking about the fall and the, the lands become all winter and it's the, you know, winter without Christmas and so forth and so on. And then when he starts talking about Aslan, the Christ figure, the chapter now reads Magic from Before the Dawn of Time. And it's Lewis's neat way of saying Satan has his chess move and God has another one planned. And that, that mysterious way that God works is just, that's what makes him God. So, evil is, is the, if I were a non-Christian and I wanted to attack the Christian faith, I wouldn't worry about evolution or anything else. I'd come right at, at you uh, through, at the problem of evil. And because that's where we tend to be squeamish. And we don't really want to be forthright to what the Scriptures say. And the Scriptures simply say, and Paul's very abrupt 
And it almost sounds like Paul is very harsh in Romans 9 when he says, uh, I will, you know, he quotes uh, the Old Testament, I will harden whom I will harden. And uh, Paul says, so there you are. And woe be to the man who questions that. And that really, really rides us the wrong way sometimes, especially if you're in the middle of a suffering situation and you're hurting. Um, it's easy to get concentrating the sovereign omnipotence of God and not realize the other factor that we'll bring up next week, and that is what feature of the Christian religion that's not true of any other religion guards us against thinking of our God as a bad God? And the answer to that question is Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus Christ is God incarnate, then when, the, when God ordained there be evil, He ordained that He Himself would suffer with it. Because what does Christ do? Does he not bear all the sins of the world on himself? So didn't God get himself personally involved with this thing? So God is not an uninvolved God. And I think that's what angers us sometimes is that we always think of God as safe in heaven. Well, he never feels this way. Or he's never personally touched like I'm personally touched. He never had a baby die. Or he never had cancer. Or he never had this. Or he never had that. Baloney. He came in contact with it all. And see, that's what's missing in Islam. Islam makes a big thing about this Allah. And Allah is supposed to be the great, sovereign, omnipotent God. But Allah always stays safe. Allah never gets dirt under his fingernails. Allah never dies for anybody. Allah never feels sadness. And you'll see in the notes that I hand out, one of the passages Francis Schaeffer loved to point out, and it's been helpful to me over the years, is John 11. Here you have God incarnate coming to the grave of his friend. Lazarus, and he weeps. And that's a little verse in the Greek. And what Schaefer points out, just a simple observation, but it just hits you like a ton of bricks. Schaefer makes this obvious induction from that verse. He says, isn't it interesting that Jesus Christ could be grieved and angry at the death of his friend without being grieved and angry at himself for allowing it? That says something. How could in his, in his response to that event, in those that family's life, Jesus act the way he acts in John 11 with compassion, with grief, with sorrow. And he doesn't get angry at himself and say, well, I really screwed up and made history this way. You don't see Jesus acting that way. So it tells you there's something going on here that we don't fully understand. How God can be grieved so deeply and be wounded on the cross as he was. Um... Part and parcel of the, of the horror of hell itself. Uh, it's one of those neat truths of Scripture that you, you've got to keep all the Bible together. Remember I said the first night we were here, it's like the B-52s flying over Hanoi and I had a friend of mine who was one of the co-pilots there and he was saying he flew the first combat mission he ever flew was at night. And he says, you know, you see the SAM missiles come up and they start blowing up in the clouds and you think, geez, the first thing you have, you want to do is you want to move that aircraft and start moving like this, and you can't because your, your electronic countermeasures is covering this guy. And you break formation, you've exposed your buddy. And conversely, he's here, so you have to sit there and hold the stick and trust that the system is going to work the way it was designed to work and blow the things up before they blow you up. So he said, that was bad enough. So then the next night, I figured, I prayed for clear skies so at least I could see the missiles and they wouldn't just blow up in the clouds. And then when I saw them coming up, I had more time to watch them and that was worse. So it's always reminded me that 
that same idea that each B-52 flying in a flight of three or four had to fly in a certain formation to protect themselves. And every piece of scripture has to be related like this. That's why Jesus, over here in the New Testament, as the incarnate God, is, is vitally important to protect and balance this issue of the fall and God's sovereignty and he's a judge and so forth and so on. Got to keep these truths all together. And what the enemy wants us to do is he likes to come in and peel off one of these truths and get it isolated off here so he can eat it up and distort it. And our job as Christians is to keep those truths guarding each other, each of the truths together in the pattern of Scripture. And that's not easy to do. That's what we're trying to do here is to give the panorama to show these great events and that they are interrelated. There's these grand themes that run through the Bible from beginning to end. And you have to concentrate on those. Yeah, Henry. Separation again. We die. 
Well said, Henry. Well said. Okay, well, we've reached our 9 o'clock time, so let's uh, call it quits.